All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, super thankful, as always, to be worshiping with you and to have the privilege to share God's word. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Sam. I am one of the pastors here on staff. As mentioned, to all the members, uh, it seems like there's a lot of members' meetings and totally get it. I know there could be a members' meeting fatigue, but I believe this is the last one for the year, so you'll be good through the Christmas break. And secondly, it is important. I think it's part of maturing and growing as a church. I will say it is a healthy sign if you don't necessarily look forward to every members' meeting, but you understand that it is vital and important as with any other important thing in life. And for those who signed up for this round of membership classes, looking forward to seeing you tomorrow evening on Zoom. Uh, we're excited to be able to share more about membership, get to know you a little bit better, and connect you just one step closer to what our church is about and uh, maybe even giving you an opportunity to join us. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we've been going through a sermon series titled The Family of God. Uh, I hope it's been helpful but also challenging for a lot of us who, you know, family is something that is very near and dear to a lot of us. It's something kind of somewhat of an idol in that we don't ever touch it. But a lot of us, without even realizing it, we kind of center our lives around our perception of what family is. And so far, the past three weeks, what we've been seeing through Scripture, through the words of Jesus, through various epistles, is that family is very different in the life of a Christian. Uh, it's not just a weekly gathering of individuals that makes up the church, but Christians are to relate to one another in a much deeper way, uh, in familial sense. Last week, we learned we're also to be like members of a body that we are interconnected, that we care for one another, that we need one another. And today we're going to just continue that conversation of how are we to function and look as the family of God. Now the text we're going to be turning to in just a second, it's going to come from the book of Titus. But before we turn there, because I don't want us to just jump in, let me give a little bit of context so you understand what is Titus all about and where are we going to be landing. So Titus, if you didn't know, he was a disciple that was mentored by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, obviously, the famous missionary Christian, he had uh, particular people who he really invested and poured into and mentored. One of them was Timothy, and another was actually Titus. They were like spiritual sons to Paul. And he joined Paul on one of his missionary journeys to a, an island called Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean, where evidently it was a very ungodly, worldly place. They evangelized, shared the gospel, planted a couple churches, and which is so true to what we're trying to do as a church today. Just because you hear the gospel doesn't mean you're going to be a healthy, thriving, growing church or Christian. So Paul, realizing that, is like these Christian converts now need to know what it means to be Christian. They need to know what it looks like to follow God. They need to know that Christianity is not just some sort of one-time mental ascent. It is a radically new way of living your life and submitting to God. So he tells Titus, I'm actually going to leave you in Crete. I want to leave you there so you can establish a healthy church, establish leaders, but more importantly, to, to encourage, to teach, to exhort the Christians there to godly living. Godly living in a culture that was totally opposite that in a lot of ways. And so the text we're going to turn to, if you have your Bibles, Titus chapter 2, we'll look at verse 1 through 8. It should be on the screen behind me as well. And what Paul is doing here is as a mentor to Titus, who is kind of leading this church, He's giving a very practical and specific set of instructions for him to teach to specific groups and people in the church, okay? So Titus, Titus chapter 2, starting from verse 1, we'll read verse 1 through 8. It's the reading of God's word, Paul talking to Titus. He says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. 
similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Amen. This is the reading of God's Word. Now, let me say right off the bat, there's a lot going on in this passage. Uh, in the world we live in today, it can even come across as controversial at face value. There's a lot of angles you can take it. And just know, not because I don't want to go there, but for the purpose of this message and series, we're going to take a specific angle and look at this text through the lens of what the Apostle Paul has to say in the series of the family of God about the importance and the role of older men and older women in the family of God. Older men and older women and their role in the family of God. Now, if you didn't know, I'm the youngest of three siblings. I'm pretty sure a handful of you are the youngest in your family or maybe whatever you understand sibling dynamics. I have an older sister who used to be a member here. And I have an older brother who's four years older than me. And whether I like it or not, I have to admit that a lot of my formative years of my life were spent from just learning from and observing my older brother. And how he lived his life and how he basically taught me both directly and indirectly of what it means to uh, be a man, be a Christian, uh, do certain things in life. For example, two hidden skills I have that not many people know of is that I'm actually a closet gamer. I'm very confident in my Super Smash Brothers skills. I grew up playing Mario Kart. I'm confident I could be 99% of you guys, right? And secondly, I'm actually a very good chess player. And chess is not cool, but my brother thought it was cool. So I like my brother. I thought my brother was cool. So I, I play chess. I, 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 it's kind of shameful to admit, I used to borrow chess books at the public library, right? I would learn strategies. I don't know if you know, there's like a, so that's why Queen's Gambit to me, I ate that all up. People be like, wow, I didn't know chess was so crazy. I was like, of course it is. I know the Russian strategy. I know the two-step checkmate. I know all of this stuff because why? I looked up to my brother and my brother was passionate about chess. Not just my biological older brother, but when you expand that, I think my most formative relationships even in the church, if you grew up in the church, you can relate. The most influential relationships I had were with older brothers, older brothers in the faith. They were the ones that took this thing called Christianity and God and godliness, and here's what they did. They colored it in. They put meat, bones, and flesh to it, to what it means to live as a godly man for better or for worse. As much as I like to say a lot of the good influences came from older brothers, a lot of terrible ones came from them as well. And the case is this, older brothers both inside and outside the church, they subconsciously play influential roles in our lives and in our growth. I bet if I talked to any one of you and said who were formative, you would point to an older sister or an older brother. And all that is to say in our text today, we see the simple reality that the way the family of God sees and grows in godliness is often through the everyday teaching and example of older brothers and sisters in the faith. Simple as that. And I want to flesh that out and challenge our truths with this. One of the primary means that God uses to train up and grow his family is through the willingness and the intentionality of the older generations to pour into and lead and teach the younger generations. Now, I want to unpack that statement in three ways to give a fuller picture of what does the Bible actually have to say about this. Now, for the sake of this message, I'm just going to use one term to describe this idea of older pouring into younger because I don't want to say it all the time. I'm going to use a loaded word, but don't read too much into the word, the word mentorship. By mentorship, all I'm referring to is the concept that older people are pouring into younger. Okay, don't think, you know, I know mentorship carries a lot of baggage, like, oh, mentorship brings a scar to me because my mentor abandoned me. None of that stuff, please. Just a word for the sake of clarity of older pouring into younger. And here's the three important. Number one. 
the importance of godly mentorship. Number two, the challenges of godly mentorship. And thirdly, the motivations of godly mentorship. First, the importance. So, again, Titus is pastoring Christians and the church in Crete. And the problem they're facing is simply this. Christians were not living their faith out. They were not living like Christ. Their doctrine was divorced from their practice. Talk about something that's timeless. Talk about something that our church today could probably be appropriately convicted of. They talked the talk but didn't walk the walk. And looking at the situation, the Apostle Paul, here's what he has to say about those people. Immediately prior in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Those people, these false teachers, these false Christians, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And that's where before anything else, I want to remind us today, church, of a simple truth that is blasted consistently throughout the New Testament, which is this. The root of faith in God should always lead to the fruit of godliness. That is not an option. That is a reality. Godly belief should always lead to godly behavior. That's why Paul says, the gospels say you will know them by their fruit. It doesn't matter how passionate a person talks about, I love Jesus, I love God, and oh, of course I believe in heaven and hell. If their life for a matter of years does not show that at all and their doctrine is divorced from reality, Paul would say, They're unfit for the kingdom. These people deny what they claim to believe by the way they live their life. That's what he's saying. That's what's going on in Crete. And so Paul exhorts Titus to remind the people, not like those people, but in verse 1, you, Titus, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Or another way to put it, tell the Christians, you got to walk the walk of the gospel. You have to live intentionally in a manner that is fitting according to, in light of, that makes sense with your proclamation that Jesus is who he says he is and Jesus calls you to be who he calls you to be. Now, where does mentorship fit into this? Notice, the first thing Paul points to after talking about the importance of godly living in the church is to the older man and the older woman. You notice that? He says, you need to teach us according to sound doctrine. Let's get real practical here. Older men and older women, you matter in the church. It's as if he's saying, Teach your church to live godly lives, and you got to start at the top. Now, let me clarify, because I'm sure you're wondering. Sam, we're talking a lot about age here. It's a sensitive thing. How do you define old? I don't consider myself old. That's a great question. Maybe you're sitting there and thinking, well, this clearly does not apply to me. I I am so young. (laughs) But at the same time, well, first of all, let me contextually, historically admit, our church is pretty young, relatively speaking, right? Like... We don't really have a youth group. We don't have parents with kids in junior high per se. Uh, We don't really have grandparents. And I would love to have a moly fully orbed church like that one day. But contextually, Paul, he probably was thinking about a little bit older than our average age, maybe like 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond. But at the same time, what I love about God's word is it still has something to say. I love the fact that it doesn't say you're old. It says that you're older. And guess what? Most of us are older than somebody, wouldn't you say? And if at the very least you don't think you are, I'll just grab one of the kids in education, but you're older than him. You're older than her. Or maybe in this specific Sunday context, the youngest in our church at least would maybe be like a collegian. And maybe as a collegian you're thinking, well, I'm young. And I would argue, okay, sure, but one day you will be older. And it's never too early to strive after what's going on here. And with that in mind, in verse 2 to 3, Paul exhorts Titus, teach the older men and older women to walk in godliness. And we're going to break down what that means in the next point. But for now, notice he highlights the main thing is that godly characters of older men and women matter because as verse 4 to 5 tell us, 
You don't grow in godliness in the church as an older man and woman just because you want to be known as a godly person. Or just because you want spiritual status and say, wow, look at that Mount Rushmore. Those older brothers and sisters, they're so godly. No, there's a point and purpose to why you should care about it. And verse 4 to 5 tell us why for older women. So that then they can urge younger women to walk in godliness in the home, in the workplace, in the world. To be self-controlled, to be pure. And similarly, older men like you, Titus, to encourage young men. There's a point and a purpose to your godliness. And it's really not about you. Paul implies it is the role and responsibility of older men and women to teach and encourage younger men and women in the faith. Now let me clarify. This is not to say being older automatically makes you more godly or more mature. There are a lot of childish, immature, old people. So that's not the natural equating that's happening here. But what Paul is saying is that older men and women, and I think most of us would agree, they do carry a unique platform and position because they do have a greater level of life experience, hardship and sufferings in life, which uniquely positions them to be in a position to teach those who are younger. Let me give a few examples of this. The Bible is clear that we are called to be good stewards of our finances, to be generous givers. Any Christian would be amen to that. Now, here's the problem. We have a biblical command and concept, and we have something called reality. And the problem for a lot of Christians is we don't know how to take the Bible into reality. So you have a very conceptual Christianity, but how does it actually play out in real life? What does that look like every day? You know what I did? My family did not teach me really good about finances and money. So I always knew I got to be a good steward. I just didn't know what it looked like. So you know, I called one of the older brothers in our church. I said, hey, you've been dealing with money longer than I have. I think you're a godly man. You're respectable. Tell me everything <laughs> from a Christian perspective. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what four or one, two, three, five, K. I don't know any of that stuff. Please. And I'm just gleaning, gleaning and gleaning for guidance for an older brother. In the church, who I thought more experience and wisdom regarding this. Or another one. The Bible commands clearly you're to forgive and love your enemies. Concept, command, I get it. But here's reality. I hate that person. So what does that look like? Do I go hug them and kiss them and say, like, that's, no, it doesn't work out that way. Real life, the journey from command and concept to reality, it is a windy, long one. And the best place to go to take that journey is someone who's walking a little further than you. Amen? That's where older women and men come into the picture. So that I can't tell you for sure what it looks like in your life, but I can take you one step closer by encouraging you. Talk to an older brother or sister in the faith who's probably navigated that more than you have. Or even the loaded topic of marriage and family. I only bring it up because it's in the text. For example, like sisters who are married. This text gets into the potentially messy and complicated realm of be subject to your husband, don't see your role as a mother in the home as second nature or second place. What do you do with that, especially in this day and age where there's so many conflicting messages coming from the world and everything seems like a hodgepodge of confusion? What do you do with that? Well, first I would say don't ignore it because the Bible talks about it. We don't want to be a church ever to ignore what the Bible has to say. But two, there's nuances. There's context. So what I would say, and I think what Titus would say, is he would point you to an older woman and say, even though she may not have it fully figured out, she probably has it a little more figured out than you do. Begin that conversation. Talk about it. What does it look like? And I could go forever about this. The point is this. God's primary avenue for the church to see what godliness looks like in the flesh, in real life, 
seems to uniquely revolve around the mentorship of older men and women. So the point is simple. In the family of God, the intention of pouring out from older to younger is not only important, I would argue, using the body analogy, it is vital to the health and growth of the church. So if that's the case, how come it doesn't really happen organically? Why don't we see it as much? Point number two, the challenges. And there's some very real challenges. Please recognize the church is a, a spiritual entity. It's a spiritual entity. And what that means is there is a spiritual enemy who is trying to get the church to stop growing. Nothing pisses the enemy Satan off more than when the church is actually healthy and growing. So it would be utterly foolish as a Christian who believes in spiritual realm and spiritual warfare to think you're not going to face challenges and obstacles to establish godliness of all things in the culture of the church. And so there's three things I want to highlight of what challenges that come now as you try to establish godly mentorship. And the number one thing is this, lack of godly character. Lack of godly character. Notice before Paul even says anything about the older pouring into the younger, he says, Titus, teach the older men and women to focus and care about godliness. That's what he says. Teach them to care about their character. Now let me briefly break down what is he calling them to grow in, just to give you a little bit of picture of what the man and woman looks like. In Titus verse 2, he says, to the older men, here's a description of things they should be pursuing. They should be temperate, which means sober-minded. It means you're not overly addicted or controlled by any sort of substance or person or a habit, but you are even keeled. You are not mastered by anything. You're dignified. You carry a, a, a weightiness and a respectability to you. Uh, you're self-controlled. Similar to temperate, but it kind of emphasized that because you're battle-worn mentally, you have sober thinking. You know how to prioritize well. You're sound in thought and judgment. You're sound in faith and love. You maintain your faith in God and you Despite how cynical life can make you, you strive to love. In verse 3, to older women, he said they are to be reverent. He says, older women, oh, if only they would be known as reverent, holy, priest-like, literally that's what it means, to be set apart. And it seems like these next two, I think they're a little more contextual, but I think there are timeless elements to them possibly. He says, teach the older woman to not be slanderous and, and, and grow in gossip. Basically, he says, the, the woman in Crete, the older woman, now I think to give the benefit of the doubt, here's why I think that happened. I think life hit them hard. I think they became extra critical and cynical of stuff, and I think they had every right to feel that way. And there became a pattern where I think Paul's calling out, it seems like the dominant way that the tongue is being used by the older woman is not to edify and build up, but it's to cri be critical and to tear down. And he says, let that not be true. And this one, I don't think is true of our church, but apparently the older women in Crete were drunkards, <laughs> straight up. They were enslaved to much wine. And my hunch is maybe because of the culture they were in, maybe the oppression, maybe just the pains of growing old, they seem to have turned to wine and alcohol to deal with the pains and frustrations of old age. And basically, so tell them not to be enslaved to any sort of substance outside of their hope for Christ. Now, some of these are obviously more unique to the Cretan men and women. Some of them more timeless. But the point is this. The first step towards godly mentorship is godly character. And so by implication, the first and most obvious roadblock and challenge would be if the older brothers and sisters are not or do not desire to grow in godly character. It reminds me of seeing in Avengers Endgame. You might think, well, that's outdated, Pastor Sam, and I'll say, you're outdated. Avengers is never outdated. Are you kidding me, right? So the Avengers Endgame. If you don't know what happens, Endgame is part two. So the enemy has won. Thanos has won. Five years have passed. Everyone is all split apart. And now they're rallying the troops back together. So they're saying, let's get back in the fight. 
we have a way that we're going to defeat and bring everyone back. So, so Rocket, and the, Rocket and Hulk, they hop on a truck. They travel all this way. Why? Because they're like, we got to get Thor. God of thunder, mighty, mighty Thor. And obviously, you guys all know Thor. You need him on your team. He is powerful. He is strong. He's clearly one of the strongest Avengers. So they journey. They go on this, to this little village in the back of a truck. And when they get there and they open the door, it's not mighty Thor. It's fat Thor. He's drinking beer, playing video games. And essentially, it is the visible picture of a man who is retired from the fight game. Whoever the mighty Thor was before, that's the past. Now he's fat Thor, and he's not interested in battle. That's a loose analogy, but in a similar way, I feel like for some of us as we get older in life and in our Christian faith, we lose the fight. We lose the fight for godliness. And if a younger brother or sister were to come to us for godly mentorship and journey their way, we got nothing to offer because whatever they're looking for is not us anymore. We're not mighty Thor anymore. What we can offer is sit on my couch, let's hang out, let's play games. I'll tell you nostalgic stories of battles of the past. But when it comes to godliness, I'm retired. I'm retired. Small illustration that Pastor Tom and I always share to encourage each other. I think Asian Americans have a particular hard time with this because we think age means status. So the older we get, the more right and justification we have to do what we want to do or not do what we don't want to do. And I, I would argue that's not true for uh, the Caucasian church. It's simply not. So Talbot Seminary, where we go into school, uh, one of the seminary professors there who's older, who's been there forever, his name is Mick Borsma. And he's like the pastor of pastors. He teaches pastors how to pastor. This guy has probably heard... Thousands and thousands and thousands of sermons. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors he's come across. If anyone has a right to be fat Thor, spiritually speaking, it is Borsma. And at one of the chapels, which you're all required to go to, you go in there and there's a student. Okay, student, probably in his 20s, preaching a message that Tom and my, myself can just nod our head and just cross our arms and be like, I know exactly what he's going to say. I've heard this a hundred times. I could preach it better. And we're sitting there like, please tell me something fresh and new. And here's what Tom says. Borosmar sitting there, 60, 70-year-old man, eagerly, attentively, open book, open Bible, taking notes. Why? Because there's still room to grow in godliness. God still has something to say. And that's mentorship. How can you not be moved and challenged when you see an older brother do that? And in the same way that you can influence godly, you can influence retirement. The second challenge we see is lack of conviction. The simple dictionary definition for conviction is a firmly held belief. Emphasis on firmly. So you're not just grasping something, you're grasping it firmly. And I would argue that the challenge of growing older in life and in the faith, it is not a lack of belief. It is an increasingly waning sense of conviction in practicing what you believe. We're at the age right now where people are getting older. My peers in the faith are getting older. Even some of the people who have come through our doors, they're getting older in the faith. They never denounce the Christianity. Some of them do, and that's heartbreaking. But most of them don't. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Of course, I believe in God. But everything about their life just says, but I just don't really care to live it out anymore. I've done the Christian thing. I've done the church thing. There's an old song from the mid-2000s. One of my favorite artists back then was Lupe Fiasco. Okay, hope you know him. One of the greatest singles ever, Kick Push. 
song about skateboarding. I get bitter because I didn't pick skateboarding, so I'm like, oh, I missed out, right? But kick, push. The chorus is catchy. It goes, so I kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, and coast, right? On the surface, it's a song about his love for skateboarding, and he says he doubles up. It's a metaphor for life, and if I were to borrow these lyrics, I would think that's the temptation for a lot of us in the faith. Kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, but at a certain point when life gets too comfortable, our priorities get too big, or we're too busy, no more kicking, no more pushing, it's time to coast. Here's the problem with that. Godly mentorship and intentionally wanting to share life with someone is not coasting. It is kicking and it is pushing. That's the territory it falls under. I remember in my college years, naive Sam, super young, super passionate, on fire for God. I used to look at what back then I thought were the older Christians who were like in their 30s. I'm in my 30s now. I'm like, I ain't that old, fools, right? And I used to think, oh, I'm never going to be like that. Or checked out of the faith. What's wrong with these people? They don't love God. Can I tell you now, as one of the older ones in the church, I get it. You try getting married. You try working a job. You try having a kid. You got less time. You're getting older. You have less energy. And the most underrated part is your body don't function like it used to function anymore. You're sore more. Your, your bowels aren't cooperating with you. It's just tiring just living. So there's this lurking voice in your head that like creeps in now, right? The unholy ghost, if I can put it that way, and says, you've done enough. You've paid your dues. Now coast. Now let me make it clear. I'm not necessarily saying that our church has a major issue with this. So please don't feel like that's what I'm saying. Like I mentioned, I actually feel like our church, objectively, is still relatively young. So we are not set in our way. So praise God for that. As I'm preparing this message, I was praying because I think we have the margin and we have the potential to forge our own path forward and to establish this kind of culture together. For example, one of the things we talk about staff all the time that we love about our church is that all of our young parents and moms want to join in worship. That is a beautiful culture. You know why? Because a lot of churches, you know what happens? You see that glass window back there? That's not the sound room. That's the cry room. And you know what happens in there? It's supposed to be so that, you know, young moms can go and their babies are crying. But here's what it turns into. It turns into the coast room where I'm not here to listen to the message. I'm not here about godliness. I'm here to catch up because I'm so dead tired from being a mom. But our moms, and I love when I hear the babies crying, just not too much. Then it's like, oh, man, it's, it's getting tough, right? Especially if it's Ezra. It's like, oh, come on, chill out, right? But... So encouraging. You know why? Because if I'm a young mom, I could easily say it is too stressful having to hold a baby and try to calm them while trying to like piece together a sermon. I just want to chill. I just want to socialize. But seeing a culture where the older women are trying to take part in worship, you know what ends up happening? You know what that does to a church? It says an indirect mentorship. When new moms come into the picture, they say, it is absolutely normal to join worship with my baby. That's the culture. Where did they learn that? The older woman. I think we're at a really pivotal time in the lifespan of our church where if we can establish this godly mentorship by the grace of God, we can truly grow. And if you've been at our church for a while, let me peel back and be a little bit more honest and transparent. 
one way or another in the history of our church, for whatever reason, there seems to be this falling off ceiling where we're growing, we're growing, we're growing, and then the older brothers and sisters in our congregation, for whatever reason, they disappear. Now, there's some legitimate reasons, don't get me wrong, but every time we're trying to forge path to a more fully orb church, that generation, for whatever reason, dissipates. And for those of you who are still here, I have faces and names in mind. I commend you. Our church needs you. Our church needs you. And to the older men and women who need a fresh dose of conviction, Paul says in verse 2 3 specifically, older men, among everything else, what is unique to the challenge for you is you need to endure. That's what he says. Endure. You know what endure means? It means stay in the fight. When you run a marathon, you could look ugly when you're running. Your motion could look funky. You could be hobbling because it's tiring. But endurance means you're still running. You still got fight. It doesn't have to look pretty. And for older women, it says, teach younger women. Take everything you've learned through life, through the church, through your relationship with God. Formulate what is good and right and teach it. That's what it says in verse 2 to 3. I do want to give a quick note here because I think it's important and it is textual. Notice in the text Paul tells Titus, teach the older men. Teach the older women. And also Titus, encourage the young men. But he seems to uniquely and exclusively give the responsibility of urging and teaching the younger woman to the older woman. Do you guys catch that? Now let me clarify. This does not mean that men can't or shouldn't teach younger women per se. I think men and women both are equally in need of intentional pastoring and teaching and leadership and equipping. But the Bible is clearly making a special emphasis that there are certain discipleship needs that only an older woman can provide in the life of a younger woman. And if the analogy is a body, for that mentorship culture and avenue to be missing or severed is for the body of Christ to be incomplete, to be handicapped. That's what the text is saying. Now, that's a loaded topic. Hopefully, we can continue to delve into. But if the first is lack of godly character, second is lack of conviction, the third is lack of clarity. And we'll get a little bit more practical here. Lack of clarity. So the challenge is straightforward and understandable. It's, okay, so what does it even look like to do this godly mentorship? This is where I mentioned earlier, the concept of mentorship, it can get super overcomplicated. Like, is this like a, a four or five week thing? Is this like a one-on-one thing? Is this like an every other week thing? Is this like an hour and a half meeting? Just let's chill on the details a little bit, okay? That's not what we're trying to focus on. Paul He gives a very broad but very helpful application on how to apply this. And he colors it in verse 7. After saying you need to pour in to the younger men, Titus specifically, he gives a short application in verse 7. He says, this is how you do it. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Simple application in three parts. Part one is the clear exhortation, which is set them an example. Now, notice it doesn't say be an example. You know why? Be an example is passive in nature. It means do your thing, just be a good godly person, and hopefully a younger person picks up on that and witnesses and gets blessed by that. That's not what it's saying here. It's not saying just do your thing and hopefully God uses it. It's much more proactive and intentional. It says set them an example. Go out of your way to be inviting people and being seen in the lives of people how you are striving to pursue godliness. That is kick push. Not coast. Part two is the extent, which is when do you do this? How do you do this? Is it just 
uh, be an example on Sunday, be an example in just spiritual things. No, in everything. In the Greek, that means in everything. It's, it's simple. What's everything? Finances, parenting, fixing your car, buying groceries, and your struggles and your failures. In everything, set them an example, and here's why. This was the Cretan issue, and this is even our modern contextual issue. People need to know that living for God is immensely practical. It applies to everything. That God and the Bible has something to say, if not directly, at least by implication, for every sphere of life. That a disciple means you follow God on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Not just Sunday. Discipleship is the air you breathe from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. So the command is set them an example in everything. And what's the action? Do I need to be a pastor? Do I need to do a Bible study? Maybe, but it's much more. It simply says by doing what is good. And he doesn't want to over-spiritualize or over-complicate it. He says take everything you know about who God is, who he calls you to be, and do your best to do what is good in the right situation. And that's how you'll mentor. Now if I can, as I slowly bring the plane lower and lower, I want to address three groups of people in our church that I think this applies to in very unique ways. The first group is if you're sitting there and you look around the church and you think and feel like, man, I'm old. That's what I'm talking to you first. If I were to subjectively get a little more specific, this is Sam's opinion, in our church at least, if you were born in the 70s and the 80s, maybe like super early 90s, contextually, we fall in the older category in our church. So sad, right? Can we take this message to heart that in our local family and body, we have the unique privilege and platform to pour into the younger brothers and sisters in the church? And trust me, I get it. A lot of us feel unqualified for whatever reason. The temptation is to think, well, who's my older person? Who can I turn to to get poured into? Totally justify. I totally understand. And here's what I would say. Well, it's got to start somewhere. It's got to start somewhere. And so the best applications I could think of for that is, well, number one, let's at least turn to each other. Let's at least encourage each other. Let's cling to the older saints in Scripture or read biographies of dead saints who not only did they not have older people, they had nothing. They had Christ. And not only that, we need to be reminded, spiritual endeavors like growing in godliness, they access the spiritual resources of God. And God promises he will always give the sufficient grace necessary to fill the role that he places you in. I heard a quote once that I fully agree with. Godly older saints... Bring strength, stability, and wisdom to a church. How much a young church like ours needs those things. The second group are those who may consider themselves, and you look around, you're like, I am young. That's messed up, because that means you think some people look old. That's messed up of you, right? But in our church context, again, other than the kids in education, probably the college students. Can I encourage college students to ask God to grow you in a desire to be humble and teachable? To realize, man, I really don't have it figured out. I, I want to seek out older brothers and sisters who can help me grow in my discipleship and godliness. Now, I want to be careful not just to put an open call out there, okay? So, you know, the, the, the thing about collegians is they tend to apply radically and swiftly but unwisely. So if I'm not careful, they're going to go to every old person and be like, please, disciple me, right? Please don't do that. Instead, be very practical, be very sustainable at our church, the way we show we care about college students is some of our best older brothers and sisters are in college staff. Do you know that? 
some of the best brothers and sisters we have. I used to do college ministry and just know year after year we want to staff our people, not just with random people off the street, but older brothers and sisters who can relate to you but also speak truth. And here's the issue, though. The issue usually, at least it was when I was in the college ministry, is that students either don't want to interact with staff because they think someone two years older is old. What? Doesn't make any sense. Or they want mentorship. They just don't want godly mentorship. Give me life advice. Tell me what to do when I want to date. But I'm not going to ask you about God or what God wants me to do. I will say this, when younger people are hungry to grow, it challenges the older ones to really get the hunger as well. And the third group of you, I call you guys the, the middle, the sandwich, the patty of the church, right? You look around and you're like, I feel older. And then you look the other way and you're like, oh, but I feel young. You feel young and old. You're confused, right? You are a young adult, right? You're in a special, unique sandwich position to do both. To do both. So no pressure, but everything applies to you. The church is the family of God, and in the family there are all ages for the benefit of the entire family. Older people have things that young people don't. Younger people have things that old people don't. And all together we create this potentially messy, tense, but beautiful conglomerate of the family of God as we learn from each other, pour into each other. And when we take time to step into the unique discipling role God has placed us in, we're going to grow not just as a family, but as a family of God. Because godliness becomes the heart of our culture that we're trying to build, which quickly leads to the third, the motivation. Now, what's the motivation? I want to dig a little deeper into the motivations briefly, why we should care to do this, even though it will inconvenience us and it is costly. The first and most obvious motivation is because as people who have been saved by grace through faith, as Paul will later explain in Titus in verse 11, we no longer live for ourselves. And if we just remember this as Christians, so much would be resolved. Galatians 2.20 says, the day you became a Christian, you died. I and all that I am and all that I desire and all that I esteem after, I have been crucified with Christ. And the life we now live, we live for him. So remember that. But second, if you read further into Titus 2, is when we walk the walk of the faith and tangibly live out the faith, Here's what happens, and the world is so in need of this. The gospel gains weight, it gains credibility, and it gains beauty to the watching world. Later, Paul talks to people in the workforce, and he says, when you live in godliness, you can't ever make the gospel more beautiful, but it is like you are decorating and adorning it by the life you are living. I think oftentimes we do the opposite. We uglify the beautiful gospel. But the last motivation, the most important, is because God calls us to be for others precisely who Jesus was and is, first and foremost, for us. And what we all need more than anything else in life, whether we like to admit it or not, is it not unconditional love and acceptance? That's what we are all hungry after, searching for. And the problem is this. Whether you're Christian or not sitting here today, if you're not pointing your heart Godward, what you are doing is you are searching ultimately for unconditional love and acceptance in all the wrong places, and you're getting hurt, and you're getting rejected as a result of it. Whether that be in your career, whether that be in money, whether that be even from your own spouse, just know the world is a brutal place, and sometimes the church can be even more brutal when you try to get from those things what only God can give so to illustrate that, let's go back to Fat Thor, okay? I never thought I would end the sermon with Fat Thor, but here we go. So you remember, Fat Thor falls into depression. 
And I say that because the director literally says, why is Thor fat? Why is he in that state? He says, I'm trying to give you a physical representation of what depression looks like. He gains weight, stops fighting. And here's the ultimate diagnosis of why he's doing that. Because Thor feels like a failure. That's, what, that's what's going on. Thor feels like he let people down. That Thanos won because he didn't live up to his identity and he didn't get the job done. So he feels like a failure for those five years. Well, there's this scene, beautiful scene, and I rewatched it a lot last night. That's what I do. I rewatch scenes until I get like, I almost cry and then I stop. Because I'm not trying to cry over an Avenger scene. So there's a scene where Thor, he actually ends up going to the past. To moments before his mom is going to be killed. And he unintentionally, indirectly ends up running into his mom. Remember, he could not say goodbye to her. Uh, this is a very emotional scene and moment. And initially, because he doesn't want to compromise the mission, he tries to cover up his identity because he's from the future. But it's his mom. <laughs> so she notices things. The smallest things about him is like, something's off. Your eye color is a little different. You're oozing off a different kind of energy. And, you know, he's frazzled trying to make all these excuses like a lot of us do. Like no one wants to admit here and now that, you know what my problem is? I want to feel loved and accepted. Nobody wants to say that. So you come up with all kinds of excuses. Well, it's just because of this, it's because of that. And you know what? I can't diagnose. Your father can. And God would look at you and say, no, it's not. Stop, stop trying to cover up. And so he frazzles up. And in the way only a mother can, she looks Thor in the eye and she says, hmm, the future has not been kind to you, has it? And Thor breaks down, hugs his mom. I'm totally from the future, right? And he's like crying. He's like, I need to talk to you. Because sometimes in life, you just got to talk to your mom or dad. And a lot of us don't have those channels. Some of us never had those channels. And so the scene cuts to where Thor is pouring out his heart to his mom, sharing how he feels like he failed, why he doesn't feel worthy to fight anymore. And he says, oh, I'm such an idiot. And she says a very powerful line. She says, you're no idiot. You're here, aren't you, seeking counsel from the wisest person in Asgard. So first and foremost, talking to God, your father, is never an idiotic move. It is the smartest move to do. So you're an idiot to not do that sometimes, if I can say that. But here's what she does say. But you are absolutely a failure. <laughs> not an idiot, but failure, absolutely. And then she says, but that makes you just like everyone else. Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be. The measure is how well they succeed at being who they are. And then he says, oh, I missed you, mom, right? And before he leaves, powerful scene, he says, wait. And he reaches out his hand. And his hammer, which represents the fight in him, it comes flying back through the window. He grabs it and he says, I'm still worthy. And the scene ends. I think a lot of us feel like failures, like Fathor, because we don't measure up to who we think we're supposed to be or who the world says we need to be to be loved and accepted, be it in our careers, our social statuses, our role in the home, our upbringing, our relationship, whatever it might be. And here's the often ugly side of that issue. The issue with this is the symptom of feeling like a failure is absolute self-absorption. I don't know if you realize that. That is the ugly side of constantly feeling like you're a failure. The only person you're consumed by is yourself, and you feel so justified in it because you're the victim, you're the one who's been wronged against, you're consumed, 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 which means utterly you simply cannot meaningfully consider others or fight the good fight of the faith in that state. 
Because if all you're consumed by is how you feel like a failure, your eyes are constantly looking inwards. And that's where for a lot of us like Thor, here's what you got to do. You need to spiritually journey back to the cross. Remember Christ. Talk to your heavenly father. Don't cover up. Be honest. And be reminded that the very reason Jesus came to die was obviously, yes, first and foremost, to tell you, yeah, everyone's a failure. Why else would I come? But secondly, the fundamental gospel is Jesus came to rescue you from yourself. To rescue you from a wasted life preoccupied with yourself. To free you. To not say or cover up the fact that you're a failure, but rather to embrace it. And to instead of finding insecurity and weakness, what does it say? In my weakness, I boast in Christ because in my weakness, he is strong. So there's this weird paradox happening for the Christian where it's actually in your weakness and failure that Christ is made even more beautiful and magnified. So you don't necessarily got to change the fact that you're a failure because you're going to be a failure. And instead, in light of the grace and forgiveness, you're now liberated from yourself to focus on others. And that's how the church grows. Because you don't live in the shadow of who you're supposed to be but you live in the victory and assurance of who you are in Christ. And when that clicks and registers, I guarantee if you stick your hand out, your hammer will return and the fight will come back for his purposes, for his kingdom, for his glory. Let me close for us and lead us in just one prayer topic. If we could just pray and do just that, I think there was a lot that was said, some practical, some more internal. Whatever the case, I think the word always has something unique to say to everyone in your own context. And first thing, can you pray? Can you pray that God would grow our church to care about the things that he cares of? That we would reflect his character in godliness and that whatever unique role we're placed in, that we could step into that. And secondly, if it is self-absorption, if it is our own insecurities and feelings that we don't measure up, can you ask the gospel to flood over those feelings? Let's pray for those things. Let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for our church and I'll close for us.